Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Jonathan Armstrong is on holiday this week, so I'm joined by his founding partner at Cordery Compliance, Andre Bywater, to look at the upcoming EU whistleblower directive. In this episode, Andre provides a perspective on what is the new EU whistleblower directive and what will it mean for corporate compliance programs in responding it. We talk about who can be a whistleblower, the anonymity and confidentiality requirements, what route should a whistleblower take, what are the reporting obligations for a company, and the retaliation prohibition and what that means for corporations. I know you will enjoy part one of this special two-part series. Life with GDPR is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And today, I'm thrilled to have with me Andre Bywater. Andre is one of the founding partners of Quarterly Compliance in London. We are here today to explore all things whistleblowing in the EU and the United Kingdom. So, Andre, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thank you, Tom. It's great to be speaking with you again about this uh, hot topic of whistleblowing. So, speaking of hot topics, I hope most listeners to this podcast are aware of an upcoming December 17 deadline uh, around this topic in the EU. But for those who may not be, could you explain the significance of December 17th, what it means, not simply for whistleblowing, but more importantly, for our clients, corporations, and uh, other businesses who are subject to the regulations? Absolutely, Tom. Um, so the EU brought in a, a set of EU-wide rules about whistleblowing a couple of years ago. And as you just pointed out, the deadline by when the 27 EU member states have to put that into their legal systems is mid-December. Now, I believe to date, as is very much the usual thing, only one of those member states, and we're two months away, has actually implemented it. That's Denmark. But I know there are a few others who've got their laws going through the pipeline. Um, now, this is a, a, an EU-wide uh, initiative. Many EU countries have had no whistleblowing uh, systems or processes in their laws at all. Other countries have got sophisticated systems, and they'll be kind of building the whistleblowing directive on top of that. Um, so this is, as I say, for some places, a new thing. And obviously, as you said, for our clients and businesses, it's going to be a very new thing in some instances in some of those EU member states. And the EU is doing this because we had all those big whistleblowing events, uh, if I can call them that, a few years ago, Panama Papers, Dieselgate, and so on. And the EU thought it was time that it had some kind of legislation. But I must really emphasize a really important point, Tom. It's a whistleblowing about EU law infringements. So it's not a kind of whistleblowing law that covers everything in the universe. It's only about wrongdoing concerning certain EU legislation. Um, if you're happy, I can elaborate on that point in particular, because um, I think in terms of a scoping exercise, that's one of the really important things that our, our clients and folks who are implementing this are going to have to do. 
because let's say on the one hand you've got your your policy and on the other hand you've got your kind of internal playbook on your manual you've got to do a scoping exercise and look at what actually applies to you because as i say it's about certain eu laws and and they are there are about a dozen categories so let's say for example antitrust competition law you can whistleblow about that now that's going to cover just about every business but other things like nuclear safety or animal welfare that's not going to cover all businesses so they can kind of ignore those bits but they've got to do that scoping exercise and and put those in its policies and make that very clear to people who may be whistleblowers that you can only whistleblow about those particular issues under this piece of legislation it's not a kind of general whistleblower everything you don't like about the eu law if you see what i mean so that brings up a very interesting discussion we're about to have on the subtleties of this law, but more importantly, the difference in an American approach and, dare I say, the rest of the world. So the American approach is, of course, <clears throat> we don't solve problems. We overwhelm them. Uh, subtleties, <laughs> niceties, they're beyond us. Uh, we can do comprehensive. We can bomb the dog meat out of you. But precision <laughs> bombing, mm, not so good at The subtleties of that are going to be extraordinarily difficult for both companies and uh, for the whistleblowers. I have to tell you, my approach would be we're going to take the most stringent requirements there are and, and make those apply to our the entirety of our whistleblowing program. That's the overwhelming approach. But could you talk us through the scoping exercise? Because if there are companies that uh, are more nimble, subtle, and agile, um, perhaps they would need to do that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to add in that mix, Tom, you've got to think about the whistleblowing team, the people who are going to handle the claims, because they're the ones who are going to have to be saying they might be turning away when someone whistleblows about something that they, if you like, are not entitled to whistleblow about. So the whistleblowing team are going to have to recognize what those areas are. But I, I don't think it's, it's such a bad exercise, because as I say, some things will apply to all companies not only antitrust, but, for example, data protection. So you can whistleblow if your company, for example, didn't implement the EU GDPR correctly. Uh, it didn't have a, a policy in place, for example, something like that. So I think that initial scoping exercise isn't, isn't so heavy. Um, you know, there are those things you can, you can call out that are the things that you would want people to whistleblow about and that they are entitled to. So I don't think it's as bad as, as it may sound. And of course, anyway, I think to your point, businesses will want to cover other areas as well. If there's other wrongdoing going on in the business, they'll want to know about it. Um, and that's kind of like what, what we'll have in the UK in a, in a whistleblowing policy. You know, it'll say, if you want to whistleblow about bribery and anti-corruption, although that can often be in a different policy, but if you want to whistleblow about that, or let's say health and safety issues, you can do that too. So I don't think it's as bad as, as all that. I'm trying to think through the most recent public whistleblower in the United States, and that's, of course, Francis, Francis Logan on the Facebook uh, issues. And mm -hmm. the issues that she has raised, um, perhaps I don't understand the subtleties of EU law, but it strikes me that uh, there may at least be a question as to whether – uh, the allegation that uh, Facebook used or didn't use an algorithm or banded or disbanded uh, their compliance team around that uh, might actually fall outside of EU law 
if any of that's correct, um, how do you deal with a reputational fallout then from a whistleblower who doesn't have EU protection? As I said, you can you know you can put other things in that whistleblowing policy if you want. Um, like I said, if, you, if you're very concerned that you want issues brought to your attention, particularly ones about reputation, you can you could put that in your policy. Um, all I'm trying to say is, is, is you've got to narrow the scope to a certain degree because um, that's simply what this directive deals with. It's only certain things. Um, but it's entirely up to you in your policies if you want to put other stuff in. Andre, at least since the time uh, you and Jonathan formed Quarterly Compliance, uh, the three of us have had discussions about whistleblower as a cultural phenomenon and the difference right. in many EU member states' attitudes towards whistleblowers and that in the United States. And that's a legacy at least as far back as the, the Second World War. So why do you feel the EU is tackling whistleblowing now? What's changed? Well, you're absolutely, you put your finger on the button there, Tom. There's, there are deep historical issues about blowing the whistle. I mean, if you think back to Extreme left, extreme right, uh, you know, governments that have existed in, in, in the Europe, in Europe before the EU. There was obviously a whole, that there's a whole baggage there about whistleblowing, um, that, 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 you know, some people just don't like at all. And that sort of carried over, I think. So there, you know, that you, you shouldn't be ratting on people, as it were. Um, so that, that's definitely, I think, I'm sure there was some sort of psychological issues there within a couple of member states when they were voting on this directive. Um, but I say that the EU, it, it, well, as you know, the EU is a bit, of, a bit of a sausage machine in terms of legislation. It just pours out <laughs> lots of stuff. And I think it was only because it probably wanted to do something a while ago, but it's probably only because of things like the Panama Papers um, that it thought it was really time to act. Uh, and there are sensitivities there. As I say, you had a lot of member states that have had no whistleblowing laws at all. Um, so, and and I, I think this is probably going to be a big opportunity for a number of those countries because they ha there are discretions under the directive. You know, you can go wider if you want in certain respects. And I, from what I'm already hearing, some of those countries are looking at introducing, you know, wider aspects to this, so that it's not just a kind of exclusive EU piece of legislation. Andre, if we could turn now to whistleblowers themselves, who can be a whistleblower under the EU directive? And uh, what are your thoughts around anonymity and confidentiality? Right. I think this is a really important piece, and it's going to come as a surprise to many people in terms of who can be the whistleblower, um, because the, the, the directive lists, obviously, things like employees, um, management and that, and that, those sorts of you know, people who are definitely within the business. But also you could have external people as well. It could be someone who's left the business or even someone joining the business. So it's quite broad in scope. Um, and I think that in that in, I think that's part of a global trend that we're seeing that, you know, who can be the whistleblower is, is, is a wide sort of concept. Um, confidentiality is obviously absolutely crucial. You've got to, and this is very clear under the directive, you've got to keep a whistleblower's identity confidential. Um, and there are even sanctions. The directive says that member states must introduce in their laws when they implement this directive uh, sanctions for breaches of confidentiality. So that's really, really high on the list. And as you know, this is a really sensitive issue for any anyone choosing to, to, to speak up 
um, that uh, they, they want that confidentiality to be to be guaranteed. So that one's a clear one. And obviously, in your processes, in your corporations, you've got to ensure that you can maintain that confidentiality. But when we get on to anonymity, that's a whole different uh, ballgame because uh, that is being left open to the EU member states. As I touched on a moment ago, there are uh, discretions that the member states have where they can go wider or, or deeper or whatever with, with certain aspects of the law. And here it's been left open to them to decide on what they want to do about anonymity. And I think this is going to be one of the drawbacks of the legislation, and I, it'll be a frustration for businesses who want a one-size-fits-all system because – and I'm just choosing these random examples – you could find that, let's say, Holland decides it wants to deal with anonymity one way. Germany decides it wants to deal with it in another way. You know, they could uh, they could leave it very open to businesses as how they want to deal with it, or they could say, well, you can only have anonymity in these certain circumstances, and that is going to be a bit of an issue for businesses. Um, getting back to what I was saying about having your playbook for the internal team who are handling any whistleblowing allegations, I think. What you're going to simply have to do is, as the member states implement this law, you're just going to have to have a separate page that says, and if you're in Holland, it's this, and if you're in Germany, it's this, or Italy, and so on, regarding anonymity. Because um, that is going to be an issue. And as you and I know, it's, it's a particular issue if you're trying to handle a claim where someone wants to be an, an, an anonymous, that it makes your investigation uh, certainly far more complicated. Certainly something we've tried to do in the UK is be upfront and say in policies, you know, we'd, we'd rather you don't do this anonymously on an anonymous, anonymous basis, sorry, um, because it will help us in our investigation if we know who you are. So that is going to be a bit of a challenge, I think, for everybody. We're going to have a quick message from our sponsor and we'll be right back with more Andre Bywater. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One of the controversies in the United States around our federal whistleblowing provision in the Dodd-Frank Act is the United States Supreme Court has interpreted it to mean that a whistleblower must go to the Securities and Exchange Commission first to receive anti-retaliation protection. And I think that troubles many companies because, of course, they want a whistleblower to, to blow internally, to come to them internally to try to resolve the problem before it goes to a regulator what are you suggesting or seeing regarding the route a whistleblower must or could take under the EU directive? Well, that's very clear in the directive. The direction you are supposed to go, first of all, is internally. That's very, very clear. Uh, it's only, and they set up this up in the directive, in certain circumstances, like let's say you feared retaliation, something like that, that you could go externally or you go public. So there's very much a move to encourage you know, everybody to, to, to have the system so that this is done etern internally first and that you only go to 
an external source like a regulator like you just mentioned um, or even you go public so there are those three routes but the emphasis is very much on on taking this internally so i don't know whether that's a, a an advantage then that the that the that the directive is going to have um for, for people we recently had a fcpa enforcement action here involving a uk company called uh wpp and one of the an- anomalies or most interesting factors in that case was in one country, a internal whistleblower reported, or excuse me, whistle blew seven times internally with uh, documents and naming names uh, before WPP actually uh, commissioned it, an external firm to do a full investigation. At what point does a person who has whistleblown internally have the right to or the obligation to go to a government regulator uh, if the company takes no action? Well, we've got, I suppose, one way to approach this is we've got some strict timelines in the directive. First of all, you're supposed to acknowledge within seven days receipt of the uh, the, the speaking up. Um, and then you're supposed to reply within three months after that. So I'm guessing the first port of call with someone who feels they're, if they haven't heard back within those three months, is they're going to obviously start getting a bit nervous. And I suppose it's at that point that they would start thinking about going elsewhere, unless, as I said, some of the other criteria to allow you to go either externally or public apply. So, for example, if if someone thought there was some kind of imminent danger to the public, um, they could do that, you know, much, much more quickly. Um, so I think that would be the sort of probably the circumstances in which that would happen. I think those timelines would would push somebody. That said, within those three months, obviously the whistleblowing team is going to be doing the investigation. And what one key thing we've got in the directive is that the whistleblowers have got rights so that they can demand a meeting, for example. They can demand to approve the minutes of meetings they have. If there are transcripts of recordings, they can they can approve those and so on. So I'm imagining if you're, if you're in that hot seat and you're asking these questions, you're asking meetings for meetings and so on, and you feel you're getting nowhere, then it might be that you know earlier than the end of those three months, you might be wanting to 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 look elsewhere to take your claim. Andre, let me now switch over to the company side because you've used a phrase at least twice. Frankly, I haven't heard, and that's whistleblower team. And so yeah. maybe we could use that to introduce what do you see as some of the key obligations of a company, but more importantly, how should they fulfill those obligations? And perhaps you could start with who should be on your whistleblower team? Well, it's got to be, and the directive says this, you've got to have – they don't call it the whistleblowing team. They, I forget their term. It's something even duller, like internal department or something. Um, but it has to be impartial. That's the key word that they use. So, for example, it really shouldn't be your line manager who's going to be the person who's sitting in that whistleblowing team. Um, the directive doesn't say who needs to be in that team, but I'm guessing it's going to be people like, you know, if not the head of HR, somebody in HR, um, maybe general counsel, um, those sorts of people who can, who will be able to deal with the, the investigation or the, and the claims. And those are the ones who've really got to be trained up. As I said, not, it's not just that in terms of the, um, the scoping, but uh, like I said, how they deal with anonymity, for example, 
um, and just having the resources to be able to do the investigation and look at other issues. And we may come on to those like data protection, for example, and privacy rights and so on. Um, and obviously how they will deal with the individual, if this is the case, within the business who's being accused of doing some kind of, of EU wrongdoing under that scoping exercise. Um, so, yes, this is going to come as a surprise to many organizations that they really need to have some kind of team in place. That team obviously has to be trained. And it's not just training, as, as you know, on, on issues like what are the legal obligations, but there's the whole piece about how you handle someone who speaks up. You know, as we all know, and you, you, you must have heard, like, like for the audience, I'm saying, you know, stories of people who, who, who have had a very big, difficult time when they've whistleblown. Um, either they've suffered retaliation or they were afraid to come up or maybe they wanted to withdraw their allegation. There's that, that whole piece about making sure that the whistleblowing team treats a case sensitively and appropriately. Plus, Tom, also, as you know, we get false whistleblowers. So you're going to have to be able to see the, you know, cut the wheat from the chaff, as it were. Uh, or is it the chaff from the wheat? I never remember. Um, where you're going to have to filter out those, those, those false whistleblowers as well. And there's some stuff about that in the directive as well. So again, that's another thing you'd put in your notice. You know, you'd say, we don't want false whistleblowers. And again, the, the, under the E directive, those people can be sanctioned as well. So in addition to uh, what you just detailed, could you walk us through some of the record-keeping obligations that a company would have after the initial report comes in? Or yeah, as I, I would say, document, document, document. Oh, absolutely. That That is one, although, as I said, the directive offers quite a few discretions, it's very prescriptive on what you have to do uh, in terms of your document keeping. Um, like I said, people can, the whistleblowers have these rights so that you, if they, they can, you know, sign off or not, uh, as the case might be, on minutes of meetings and so on. So you've got to keep hard copies of records or, or transcripts of calls that may be made to hotline, all that kind of stuff. So you've got to keep all of that. Uh, you've got to document that process. Um, and I think that will come as a bit of a surprise to many people. And obviously, you're going to have to have your internal deadlines so that you meet the seven days and the three months and so on. But there's, there's quite a tall order there. And it's going to come as a shock not only for the businesses, but for the, the regulators as well, I think, because they're going to have to put all that in place. So, you know, start, even though the member states have, haven't all implemented the rules yet, that's something you're going to want to start on. Um, and, and obviously that touches on hotlines. You, hotlines are permitted under the, under the EU rules. Many people, of course, big, big corporations in the US already have this. Um, but people are going to want to start looking at those contracts with hotline providers, service providers. Because, for example, like I said, some of that documentation some of that re keeping recordings and so on, that may have to be done by those outsourced providers as well. I think start looking at those vendor contracts would be my message there. Andre, is there uh, – well, let me just use the energy industry since I'm the most familiar with that. Uh, energy company headquartered in, in uh, Houston, Texas, of course, has U.K. operations because of the North Sea. So energy company U.K., and they have uh, subsidiaries in other countries in the EU, energy company Germany. Energy company Hungary, energy company Poland. Do each one of those subsidiaries, are they required to have a separate hotline or can energy company Houston have a global hotline 
or could Energy Company UK run it for the EU? Yeah, this is a bit of a debate on this. My view is you can have the one hotline, but we're going to have to wait and see how some of the member states implement their legislation. Because again, this is where I'm concerned that we may get a bit more of a patchwork. Um, but my, you know, what I'm recommending to people now is that they, you know, the starting point is you have the one hotline. You touched on the UK, but of course, post Brexit, uh, we're not in the EU. So <laughs> the UK will not be implementing the directive. But I think like with so many of these devil in the details in the Brexit deal, if you look in there, uh, it says that we have to ha maintain an equal level playing field with the EU on employment issues. And this is very much an employment issue. So it could be, and uh, this will raise the hackles of many people, that the EU whistleblowing directive comes through the back door uh, in the UK. But we, al we already have, you know, quite sophisticated whistleblowing legislation here. But yeah, I think that, that could pose a bit of an issue for an organization um, if they wanted to run that from the UK. Because I imagine they would be keener to have a hotline where everything's done in English, um, but I suspect that you would still you'd still want to have uh, some local language requirements so that you know if you have a, a hotline provider and outs and outs you've outsourced that that you still have someone who can provide that in Polish or, or Hungarian. Um, so there's going to be a little bit of an issue there. I think that 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 there are some definitely some some possible problems there. But my starting point is yes, I would think you can go for the one hotline that covers everybody, but but we, it's going to be a bit of a wait-and-see game. Andre, one of the things I think is perhaps the most different with the EU whistleblowing directive than EU excuse me, whistleblowing obligations in the United States under a variety of laws is the uh, anti-retaliation provisions mm -hmm. that companies now have to affirmatively show. So I was wondering if you could Maybe walk us through that and, and really emphasize the difference between uh, an affirmative obligation rather than simply saying uh, there's no evidence. The the retaliation bit is is a key piece of the directive. Uh, they set out a long list of what is considered to be retaliation. Again, some of the things might come as a surprise to some people. So it's not just like the regular things, like someone gets laid off. Uh, or they get sent to, you know, congratulations, you're the marketing director of Mongolia. Um, it, it's, it's more subtle things as well. Um, but there, there is going to have to be an affirmative piece, I think, there that companies will have to do. And again, I think this is going to be a key part of the training of the whistleblowing team, because if the person speaking up makes a kind of retaliation uh, claim, they're going to have to be able to spot that and again, decide whether there's possibly some sort of retaliation going on. So there's a big awareness piece there, I think, that'll have to go on, particularly with the whistleblowing team, but also with the company. And I think this will be part, have to be part of the messaging. So if you've got a poster up, for example, saying, you know, we want to hear from you if you think there's been some wrongdoing, you're going to have to have a very careful messaging piece to say, you know, no retaliation. So I think it's, there is, there is a kind of affirmative positive steps that business are going to have to do to, you know, ensure that there is no retaliation. Um, so I think that, that that's definitely a big one. Have you and your colleagues either gamed out how this might uh, 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 occur in a, in a, a judicial, 
a judicial body or a judiciary uh, adjudicatory body such as a uh, <clears throat> labor uh, judge or labor panel in terms of how do you actually show that? What, the, the retaliation, you mean? Uh, the uh, anti-retaliation. I have to be honest, that's not something I've really kind of thought through at this stage. Well, perhaps could you use other evidence of other whistleblowers? Do you have to concentrate solely on the whistleblower? Uh, so I'm a recovering trial lawyer, so I tend to think about how do you prove this in a court of law uh, right. or in front of a panel or, or an uh, mm -hmm. impartial umpire. And I've mm -hmm. had I've really struggled with and had lots of discussions about uh, it's certainly one thing to say the typical defense in the United States is that well, you were actually terminated for something else. Right. Uh, okay. It's called the but for defense. But if okay. I've got to then put on affirmative evidence that there has been no retaliation. Um, mm -hmm. I've struggled with how to advise companies to do that. Okay. Yeah, I see what you mean now. Well, I don't think the directive helps in that respect. I think that's going to be a question of national law and how they deal with that in terms of if something comes to a court. Um so I, I don't think the directive helps that. It just lists those issues, um, you know, makes those very clear. But I think that's going to be a, a, a that's going to pan out very differently under legal systems as to how, in terms of evidence of how that's shown or rebutted or whatever. So um, again, I, that's that's a very good point actually. Um, going to have to do an education piece on that for the for the businesses. What about now? Let me turn to not a whistleblower. But what we would call in the U.S. a bystander who might see a uh, untoward action or observe conduct that the whistleblower reports, uh, mm -hmm. that has now – those people have now sought and received in some instances legal protection in the United States. Uh, is that something the EU directive covers as well, the bystander who might uh, provide facts? I think it's only to a very limited extent. I don't think they – Certainly, that terminology isn't used. So, no, that might be something of a bit of a gap um, that may be for the member states to fill in in terms of them. I'd be surprised if they thought that that far through. So, uh, off the top of my head, as I say, I don't think that's that's something I recall as being a, a particular piece that's in the directive. Um, so, probably one to be filled in by the countries in their national legislation. Let me now turn to damages. Uh, that a whistleblower might seek for retaliation. So typically, uh, at least here in the United States, you would think through uh, loss of pay, uh, loss of benefits, potential uh, income earned on a future basis uh, if you stayed in the same job. Um, but we've had a series of cases now that uh, say, oh, no, 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 it's not limited to that. It could be future employment at other job opportunities. And if there's a taint uh, put upon you, this could uh, impact you for a period of five, ten uh, years longer, perhaps uh, mm -hmm. life expectancy, things like that. Is there any uh, discussion around the potential damages a whistleblower might receive if they are either able to show retaliation or a company is not able to prove anti-retaliation? The directive doesn't deal with that to that sort of granular level. All it says is that the EU countries have to put in uh, measures that provide for compensation for people who've been retaliated against. It's as broad as that. So it's very open. And again, it's going to be then a patchwork because they've left this to you know, the national systems to deal with. 
So it'll be different in Germany, in Portugal, in Italy, and so on. Um, and I'm, I, I'm sure that already exists in some systems already where they've had these sorts of cases. So again, as I say, probably one, we have to see how the, the, the countries implement their legislation to get some sort of idea of how that might be dealt with in those different countries. So for those listening to this podcast, I think you'll observe two things. Number one, Andre is incredibly knowledgeable about this. Number two, I'm an absolute geek when it comes to the law. And that's led to a lengthening of this podcast uh, beyond our normal length. So what we're going to do is uh, we've got a lot more questions for Andre, but we're going to come back in part two of uh, this episode. So, Andre, uh, thanks so much. And I look forward to uh, visiting with you in part two. Super. Many thanks, Tom. Cheers. Thank you for everybody for listening. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Life with GDPR. I hope you'll join us in our next episode where I continue my discussion with Andre Bywater in part two of looking at the new EU whistleblower directive. If you're interested in social engineering for your compliance program, I hope you'll check out the latest edition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Design Thinking in Compliance, where with my co-host Carson Tams, we take a look at this most useful social engineering tool that can both increase the efficiency of your compliance program and its engagement. Design Thinking in Compliance posts every other Wednesday on the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again for listening. I'm going to link to the wealth of quarterly resources on the show notes, and I hope you'll join us again for part two of the new EU Whistleblower Directive with Andre Bywater. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.